Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, August 28th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're talking about the Atlantic Aerial Acrobatic Acipenser Oxyrhynchus Oxyrhynchus Sturgeon. Dang, that was a good one. And we're super happy to have two guests today, Albert Spells, the former project leader of our Virginia Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, and Steve Minkinen, who's the project leader at our Maryland Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. So big welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you. Okay, so sturgeon, they're a big, cool fish. And I always love to start the episode off like this. Could you help us imagine what it might be like to be in the water and maybe feel and just see one of these fish up close? Well, I'll start. This is Albert Spells, formerly of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And to have an opportunity to be just near sturgeon in the waters, it's just really exciting, particularly when you see those humongous animals swimming by and leaping out of the water, it, it made an impact on me. And I've talked to others as, as well, it made an impact on them that they'll never forget. And, and through those encounters, we've had people who've literally become advocates of the Atlantic sturgeon. It's just That's a cool. magnificent animal. Yeah. How big are they? And kind of what do they feel like? I'm sure you've handled one of these. Oh, they're pretty rough. The skin feels like sandpaper. They can get big. The biggest I've ever seen alive was about eight feet and 200 pounds. I did Dang. come across a 10-foot carcass on the James River one time. But the biggest on record's about 14 feet and over 800 pounds caught in Ooh. Canada back Dang. in, help me guys, back in the nineteen late 1950s, I believe it was. Can you describe the snout? It's a really interesting feature of the sturgeon and just kind of the mouth and the placement. Can you just describe what that snout is like? It's really cool. Ah, the snouts, full of sensory organs. What's so neat about it are the whiskers that Mm -hmm. hangs down from the snout just before the mouth. It's on the bottom. These are bottom feeders, and they swim along, sucking up debris off the bottom, looking for worms and the like. Those sensory organs help them to discover to the food that they are searching for. And it's the same for all sturgeon across the world with the barbels hanging down as the sensory organ, the mouth just behind it. So, yeah. Steve? And the mouth can extend. That's a long tube. It can extend. It's like a foot long on the larger fish. So, Oh, my gosh. It's completely different from a bony fish. Yeah. Okay. What can they fit in that mouth? Like, how big is it? I'd say four inches wide. Okay. They eat, you know, worms and mollusks and things, things that are in the substrate. Yeah. In the Atlantic, for sure, the mouth is almost like a proboscis. They, they swim along and they <laughs> stick that mouth out and just like a big yeah. old vacuum cleaner sucking up everything <laughs> in its way, looking for worms. And That's so cool. And that. That's awesome. It's a cartilaginous fish. You know, it dates back to the time of the dinosaurs. You know, it's just really fascinating rough skin and bony plates and you know they can touch their tail to their nose because they don't have uh, vertebrae to restrict their movement it does make it difficult to handle them at times because they're so strong and flexible they're basically all muscle 
I think we would be doing this species a disservice if we don't mention the leaping behavior that's associated yes. with that. I think I remember reading a study with, uh, it was on the Gulf subspecies of Atlantic sturgeon. I guess you'd call it the Gulf sturgeon. But they found like in a one kilometer stretch, they're recording like a thousand leaps a day. So what is this behavior? How far out of the water are these fish getting and why do they do it? I've seen it happen. I mean, they completely clear the water and it's pretty impressive when you see a fish that weighs several hundred pounds jump completely out of the water. And there's stories about colonial times where people actually getting killed or their legs broken from sturgeon jumping out and landing on them in their boats. So it's a common activity they do. We have no idea why they do it, whether they're (laughs) trying to get parasites off them or they're just trying to show other sturgeon that they're there. We don't know what the behavior is, but I've seen it myself on the uh, Marshy Hope River when we're out there gill netting for sturgeon in the fall. It's amazing to see. That's a cool way for people to interact with the fish, actually see it. It is. Well, there's a story of that. I serve on the board of the James River Association, which is a regional nonprofit that's mission is conservation of the James River. They started sturgeon tours. And in the fall of the year, you can pay to get on their boat and they will take you out and you can watch leaping sturgeon. I've, I've been on a couple of those trips. It's really neat. And the story about them killing people I don't know if they killed anybody, but that's a story about, you know, folks going up the river in the Gulf Sturgeon has severely injured people within the last decade or so. So yeah. it can still happen. You just imagine you're tooling up the river at 25, 30 miles an hour and a 150 pound object jumps out of the water and you smash into it. You can do some damage. Yeah, scary. Oh, yeah. It's neat with these, with the East Coast rivers. I mean, they had a big array of migratory fish, and that's something that's neat about this fish is they do migrate. Can we just talk a little bit about maybe a year in the life of these fish or just what their life cycle is like? Well, Atlantic sturgeon are anadromous, which means they live a large portion of their lives in the ocean, and they come back into fresh water to spawn. And one of the things that we found about Atlantic sturgeon is they typically return, we believe, to the rivers that they were spawned in. They'll come in in the Chesapeake, particularly the James River. They'll come in the spring and in the fall to spawn. They love flowing water with hard, clean bottom. They lay those eggs over the bottom after they hatch. They'll seek out the interstices of the substrate as refuge as they migrate down river. And they may stay in a river for two to three years before they out-migrate to the ocean. So we can find juveniles year-round here in the Chesapeake. And then they go out into the ocean. One of the things that we found about Atlantic sturgeon is they have a tendency to migrate up and down the coast, and they will stick their noses in rivers that they don't necessarily belong to, Mm. going on feeding forays, and they're like, they may not be spawning there. But just because you catch a sturgeon in a river doesn't mean that sturgeon will spawn there. These females, they only spawn once every three years or so. They may have a congee of a million eggs. Well, when you're only spawning once every three years, I mean, really, that's a congee of about 300,000 eggs a year. And how old are they before they can start spawning? The females are probably, you know, 12, 15, 20 years old before they start to spawn. The males a little bit sooner. But... Deforestation and agriculture probably had major impacts on sturgeon by releasing a lot of fine sediment into that spawning habitat. 
you know, which is typically just below the fall lines and, you know, could really, I mean, if they don't have that hard spawning habitat substrate, you know, that really compromises their ability to reproduce. Yeah. And one of the things that we've learned is that they have a bimodal spawning periods here in, in the Chesapeake. They have a spring spawning race as well as a fall spawning race here. Uh, we found that to be the case in the James. We don't see many spring spawners anymore. And we think that's when because the watermen out there fishing historically in the spring of the year. We have a population on the Nanticoke and Marshy Hope River in Maryland that is a fall spawning population that we just discovered back in 2014. It is so interesting when John Smith came, he always talked about sturgeon. They were so numerous. And, and he talked about how the sturgeon came into the Chesapeake Bay and the larger ones came in the fall. I mean, that evidence was in front of us for the longest, but it took Dr. Matt Belazic, who's now with the Corps of Engineers, formerly with Virginia Commonwealth University, with his work on the James River to finally figure that out. I argued with him for some time about that. But <laughs> yeah. I just bow to him now. The northern populations are spring spawners, and we seem to be on the line here where Chesapeake Bay, we have spring and fall spawning populations. And further south, you know, southern researchers have talked about fall spawning for a long time, and a lot of people weren't sure if they could believe that or not, because, you know, anadromous fish generally spawn in the springtime. But through time, we have found that, you know, we have fall spawning populations of Atlantic sturgeon. Which is not unusual for the genera because there are several species across the world that demonstrates this, this bimodal spawning. So it's been out there. We just never picked it up in the Chesapeake until in recent years. That's cool. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, you know, Native American people used to use it. They found thousands of scoots in archaeological digs around the Jamestown fort. So how was this fish used historically? And then what led over the centuries to it eventually becoming endangered in 2012? Well, historically, there's stories about the Atlantic sturgeon here in, in the Chesapeake. Now, it's a story, don't know how true it is. It's legend that if they could get in the river and ride a sturgeon, they'd become a man. Oh. There's also stories about how watermen on the James River would catch these big fish. And at the time in Richmond, there was a wooden bridge there that horses would cross. But when these watermen captured these sturgeon, there was no refrigeration. So they wanted to keep them fresh as long as they can, so they would time at the base of the bridge. These fish were so large, there were so many of them, and they're pulling, trying to free themselves, the bridge would vibrate. Oh, man. The bridge, the bridge would move so the horses wouldn't cross the bridge. So it started oh, fights between commercial people on land and the watermen in Jamestown. This is Albert's theory here. Probably without sturgeon, we wouldn't be speaking English here today. There were sturgeon scoots found in, in Jamestown to a large extent. And another thing, too, I believe if there were a fish of America, it should be sturgeon. The cod people probably fuss at me as well as, <laughs> as much as the shad people. But in Jamestown, during the starving times, about 1610, I think it was, more than half the colonists died. They were under siege by the Native Americans, so they couldn't get out, they couldn't get on land to hunt. But the Native Americans had taught them how to catch sturgeon. So there's evidence from the pits at Jamestown that they survived largely on Atlantic sturgeon during that time. So half of them died. They were getting ready to abandon the fort. 
which was the English fort. And with the English fort, the Spanish were always pretty near. They went south in, in Florida. So I guess theoretically, if these colonists would have left that area, this area would have been taken over by the Spanish. So we may be speaking Spanish today. That's mm-hmm. our story. I'm sticking with mm-hmm. Europeans came over in the 1800s, and some of them had experience sturgeon fishing over in Europe, where they harvested sturgeons for meat and for caviar, and that, that they created a fishery, and a lot of those fish have been moved on up the coast, fishing populations and depleting populations, and then they'd move on to the next river system and fish for them, and a lot of that fish was used in the U.S., but also exported back to Europe. Yeah. In Virginia, the, the sturgeon meat was called Charles City Bacon, I think it was. Oh, wow. Those initial shipments back to England from the James River, which at that time is probably the most populated area in, in North America with the English. Once they reached England, it was spoiled. They didn't process it, put enough salt. It wasn't very good. So they didn't think much of it. So the sturgeon was in the river. Then along came the Industrial Revolution. Well, we started dumping pollutants in the water. People were catching sturgeon and other nitrous species, using them as fertilizer. Dams were built, even though I think in Virginia, dams did not have much of an impact on, on, on spawning populations because it doesn't appear that the fish went much further than the fall line to spawn, <laughs> even though they did go farther upriver. But most of the spawning was below the fall line here in in Virginia. Below the dams. Below the dams. In fact, in Virginia, even back in the 1700s, there was policy put in place firing dam owners to put fishways on the dam. They weren't very effective, but it was a law. (laughs) And there was a law forbidding the capture, particularly of striped bass of, of a certain size, because people were catching them, dumping them in holes for fertilizer. So, oh, so we had a lot of habitat degradation during that industrial revolution. Just look at the pictures of a civil war. You didn't see trees. There that, that was, that was no trees. Tree, trees were, were used to build cities. Much of the areas were denuded. And I think agriculture with tobacco was a crop that didn't hold soil on the land very much. And I think one of the big problems with Atlantic sturgeon now is good spawning habitat. We were told what would happen with global climate change, with the periodicity of of precipitation, how you're going to have very, very severe rains. We start to see that now in the spring of the year. And when that happens, sediment gets into the river. We started this conversation by me saying that the sturgeon required hard bottom to spawn on. So that's lacking. Probably back in 2016, 17, we did some mapping of the bottoms. And you could find a lot of hard bottom signatures. But when you did the ground truthing, just the top of that hard bottom was was fine material sand. That's all it took to make it unusable for sturgeon. So so one of the things we see with these freshettes coming down the river, I mean, one day you may have a gravel bar there that's clean. You get a rain, next day it's covered up. That's cool. With modern fisheries science, you know, the populations had already been decimated by the fisheries in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So there wasn't a lot of fish to study for a lot of these populations. There is sturgeon populations in all the major river systems along the east coast of, you know, of the United States. 
And, you know, the, those populations to various levels got fished down to extinction mm -hmm. or to very low levels. And that certainly happened to the Chesapeake. They were fishermen, watermen, and we call them in the Chesapeake, were out typically fishing for anadromous fish, American shad and striped bass. And they typically would get bycatch of sturgeon. I heard one, one old waterman said, if they caught a 200-pound sturgeon, man, that, that paid the bills for several months mm -hmm. you know, back in, in the 40s and 50s. At some point, it just was not feasible to commercially target sturgeon because they just weren't there anymore. And we believe a lot of that was because of fishing pressure and habitat loss. Yeah, That's a neat thing in the Chesapeake, too. There's one reason I got involved in sturgeon. I can actually remember being a young biologist sitting in a room with some older, more experienced biologists with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And back then, Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries talking about uh, striped bass restoration. This back in the 80s, Steve. I can remember, boy, nobody's doing anything with sturgeon. We never heard anything about those. Hmm. Later on, there were some folks who had worked with sturgeon a lot more than me. They had actually come to the conclusion that sturgeon and the Chesapeake were functionally extirpated. However, I was fortunate enough that in the early 80s, my office was located at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. They had a liaison the there. Vims. Yeah. Uh, at VIMS, yeah. They had a liaison there, Steve Owens. Steve Owens told me, Albert, he, his job was to liaison between the university and commercial watermen. He said, Albert, they're catching sturgeon. but They're not going to say anything to you unless some money is put on the table. So that's how we got involved, because there really had not been a sturgeon study in the Chesapeake Bay in forever. Nobody studied them, because nobody thought anyone was around. So, you know, people were coming to conclusions and nobody was actually looking for the fish. Hmm. And actually, Steve over in Maryland, remember the fish that you guys released? You had tagged, like, I guess you had gotten them from Lamar. We got fish from National, Lamar, National yeah. Fish hatchery. In 1996, we released yeah. 3,000 fish in the Nanticoke River. And yeah. we had like a 14% recapture rate on those fish. So the, they resided in the bay for several years and then they became came part of the migratory population. I think one, one of the things that came out of that, Steve, that was one of those watershed moments is when you started that reward program. Steve actually originated that, that idea of right. the reward program, him working with the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, I believe, Steve. I worked for the Maryland Department of Natural Resources for 20 years before coming to the service. So, And I've been working with the service for 20 years now. Yeah. That he started that reward program, and we just jumped on board to try to support his program to determine what the distribution of those hatch-release fish might be in the Chesapeake Bay. We started the program in support of him in, in Virginia, and lo and behold, we started catching a lot of fish. That's cool. I actually caught a couple of tag ones, but most of them, over 90% of fish we caught were wild fish. Then in 1996, the Atlantic States Marine Fish Commission established a coastwide moratorium for all sturgeon species. And that is the year, actually, we did our release into the Nanticoke River. We started the Chesapeake Bay Reward Program. We assumed that we'd just catch hatchery releases, but uh, it turned out over the course of the program from 1996 to 2012, several thousand Atlantic sturgeon and hundreds of short-nosed sturgeon wildfish that were 
also present in the Bay that we never knew about before. So the tagging program provided some real interesting data that we did not have any access to before. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the reward program is? The reward program was solely for commercial fishermen. I mean, there was only ever a couple of anglers that caught sturgeon because of the way they feed their tube-like mouth. They feed in the bottom, not targeted very much by hook and line fishing. But yeah. so as commercial fishermen that would encounter sturgeon, we did that release in 96. We offered a $50 reward of watermen letting us know they have a sturgeon. We were tagging fish. Okay. So we'd go and look at all the fish that they caught. And awesome. you know, we collected, ended up collecting all kinds of data that we had no knowledge of before. We didn't know they were encountering all these sturgeon we didn't know there was still short-nosed sturgeon in the Chesapeake. You mentioned these short-nosed sturgeon. How would someone, one of these watermen, if they caught a fish, know that it was an Atlantic sturgeon versus a short-nosed sturgeon? They would tell us when they called a lot of times that I have one of the smooth ones because short-nosed <laughs> okay. sturgeon only get about three feet long. But when you touch them, they're not nearly as sandpaper-like as <laughs> an Atlantic sturgeon. They really do feel a lot smoother. Yeah. And I heard one waterman refer to them as snake sturgeon. Oh, huh. Yeah. Okay. Snake sturgeon. That's cool. And one 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 way that you might tell them the difference, it's sort of hard when doing the juvenile phase, but as you get older, the snout of the short nose was more rounder than the Atlantic. However, the Atlantic gets much bigger. When you have a fisherman that may be called in, they say we've got, you know, the soft sturgeon or, you know, we've got a sturgeon. What kind of information would you collect from them? And what would you do with that information? We'd send a biologist out there. We'd collect information on length. You know, we have a variety of tags we were putting in. And over the years, more as technology advanced, we were putting more, more better tags in there, sonic tags that, that we could detect for, you know, up to a decade after inserting them into the fish. And you're trying and to I, understand kind of their movements and like, what are those tags yeah. doing exactly? A lot of the tags we use to track the fish where they're migrating to and, you know, piggyback on other researchers work where they have acoustic arrays deployed. They also would encounter our tags and provide data to us about where these fish go after they've been tagged. One of the neat things that came out of this project, first of all, I think it helped us in Virginia build relationships with watermen. This was back in 1997. You know, cell phones weren't that widespread. We had them. I probably didn't even use it. But we had pagers. We give a yeah. pager number. Yeah. And if they caught fish, they would page us. And we had an agreement with them. You you put your fish in a container. Lots of times there were small fish. They would just take the guts out of a crab pot and leave them there. Tell us where they are. We'd come get our information. We would get length, weights. We would put back then when we started, Steve, we only had spaghetti tag and the pit tag. We didn't have the acoustic tags at that time. We would get the information in Virginia. Man, our waterman did real well. We were offering $100 mm-hmm. per fish. If it was a lie, we'd give you $100. And people would call us. There was a couple of guys on my staff at Harrison Lake National Fish Habitat, which I supervised at that time as well. And myself, we would be busy seven days a week. And we got... A lot more fish than any of us. I didn't have a budget for it. It was just on, ah, we go and get a, a few fish and we start catching fish and approach Maryland DNR, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Virginia Marine Resources Commission, and everybody put some money on the table. And we did that program for over a year initially. Mm-hmm. 
and got over 300 fish and over oh, wow. 90% of them were wild fish. And that mm-hmm. informed us, hey, you might want to look closer at this. So I think it was a real important program, real important. We ran our Chesapeake Reward Program from 96 until 2012. 2012 was the year that sturgeon got enlisted as an endangered species. And we had to discontinue that program because commercial fishermen then weren't allowed to possess fish in any form, alive or dead. Yeah. So this is a long-lived fish, and they have a long life cycle. They mature late. What are some of the things that you guys are doing to kind of hopefully bring them back to recovery at some point? We didn't think Maryland had any more populations of Atlantic sturgeon. In 2013, a sturgeon jumped into a boat in the Marshy Hill Creek, and the anglers (laughs) took a picture of it and sent it to DNR, and we talked to them, and... In 2014, we started doing some gill netting in the marshy hope and tagged several very large adult Atlantic sturgeon. So that, that's how we find out that we had a population still in one of Maryland's rivers. One of the big things, that, the hurdles that these fish have to overcome is bycatch and other commercial fisheries. So back in the early 2000s, we were working with scientists from VIMS looking at gear configuration. And to try to reduce that bycatch, particularly in the okay. spring of the year. One configuration we found that worked in the spring, found out it doesn't work as much in the fall of the year, is a gill net has an anchor line and a float line on it. That anchor line is weighted and it rests along the bottom and it creates that curtain that we've all heard about mm-hmm. with gill nets. Well, one of the things Chris Hager found was if you could get the bottom of the net off of the bottom. Let those fish swim under. Yeah, let the fish, you create a window so the fish could swim under that we could reduce bycatch during that period. I don't know that fishermen are using it, but we know it works. Okay. It can get really complicated. One thing about requiring gear changes is, you know, watermen, just like the rest of us, they work on a budget. And to buy new gill nets can be very expensive. But we did discover with this small data set that we have is that we could reduce the catch of sturgeon while maintaining the catch of striped bass in the James That's River. great. Okay. So, yeah, it can work. I don't know it's being used, but it, that we know that can work in the spring of the year. Another thing with the acoustic tag, and we found about movements uh, along the uh, Atlantic coast. There was, oh gosh, what's the fishery? Steve, where the watermen were leaving the nets. Monk, monkfish. Monkfish fish. Mm-hmm. They were killing a lot of sturgeon. Yeah. A lot of sturgeon. But those regulations were changed because they would just leave a net out there for days on end. For days on end. We know if we can catch sturgeon, release it within 24 hours in, in cooler water. I don't think it works much in, in, in the summer. But that, that fish survived. But this monkfish fishery were killing a lot of sturgeon. So... The regulations were modified, so they have to either monitor the net or leave them out there for a shorter period, I believe, Steve. Is that correct? Yes. They have a shorter time sets now. Yeah. So they it, used to it, fish those nets like once a week. Yeah. And they were using a mesh size that was a bad size for sturgeon because it would tend to hold their gill flaps shut, and then they couldn't. Oh, no. Yeah, so okay. they suffocate in the nets. So just to kind of summarize, it sounds like, I mean, reducing bycatch is one way to help these fish. 
and land use issues with sedimentation. So there's, I'm guessing, some best practices for landowners up and down their range. You've mentioned migration barriers, and then you've also mentioned hatcheries. Is there techniques? Are those kind of the main pieces of this puzzle in terms of helping these fish? I think an important component there is also collecting information out of our office. We've run a coast-wide tagging program for sturgeon as well since 1988. It's still going on today. And, you know, after the, the endangered species status, we were limited in being able to collect data. But now with this uh, coast-wide tagging program, we're using other researchers that can provide us with information. And, you know, since then, over 34,000 Atlantic sturgeon have been counted in this tagging wow. program. And That's cool. over about 16,000 short-nose sturgeon in the program over the years. So we're trying to use other researchers' captures of these fish to provide us with some some fisheries data for them. Because when you have moratoriums and they're declared endangered, you know, no one's going to tell you that they're catching these fish. So you need to find ways to collect scientific information on the population. That tagging programs is huge. One thing that came out of this, I'd just like to point out, for example, when there was research looking at windmills off of the coast of Virginia, the Department of Navy, who was one of our partners working with NIPS primarily, they paid to have receivers put out in the line to that, at least that one windmill site, 80 miles mm-hmm. offshore. Dang. Yeah. We never thought about sturgeon move going 80 miles offshore, but we found Chesapeake Bay sturgeon out there. And they arranged from Maine to Florida. So they cover a lot of territory. Yeah, a lot of pooled resources to kind of capture that. I mean, yeah, that movement. It seems like that's great. We'd have never learned that if we didn't create those partnerships. Speaking of the stray and stuff, are you guys familiar with that Baltic reintroduction program? Apparently, very recently, like 1,200 years ago, they found there's a population of Atlantic sturgeons that moved from Canada all the way over to the Baltic Sea, like Poland, Lithuania, Estonia. And actually, there's like fewer than 10 fish, the geneticists say, but they started a self-sustaining population that lasted for like 1,200 years until the 60s. And now they're trying to bring fish from Canada back over there to reintroduce Atlantic sturgeon to the Baltics. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if you could just give us a quick description of, you know, what a Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office does, both the Virginia one and the Maryland one. What's kind of the scope of your work and how do these fish fit into that? My office, we work with a lot of anadromous species, striped bass, American shad, sturgeon, American eels. We work a lot with the Atlantic States Marine Fish Commission on their technical committees. We do a lot of in-the-field research. We extensively work with northern snakeheads, you know, to monitor this invasive species that's been introduced to the bay. You know, now we have another one, blue catfish, that's becoming really abundant here. We're very concerned with. So we do a variety of work, both with management agencies and directly out sampling fish, collect information on populations of the different species that occur here in the Chesapeake Bay. Okay. Well, three years ago, we were heavily involved in habitat restoration with uh, road crossing remediation and dam removing. When I left the office, we had worked with partners. Partnerships are so, so important with us because we can't do anything alone. We don't have all the expertise of the bodies to get the work done. So we depend on 
non-government organizations and states and other federal agencies. And by the time I retired, we had worked with partners to reopen over 1,100 miles of passage for awesome. anadromous and, and native species. Yeah. And after sturgeon were declared endangered, in order to do any research with sturgeon, you needed yeah. to have a research permit through NOAA. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Albert was the first in charge of the Chesapeake Bay research permit for sturgeon to coordinate with all the researchers that were working in the Chesapeake Bay. And after Albert retired, I took over running that Chesapeake Bay research permit. Yeah. The configuration of that permit was, I think, important. And that's why we did it like we did, to get the partners to all come together on one permit. That way, when that data was gathered at the end of the year, you have one central reporting location. This is a NIMPS permit. They are administratively responsible for sturgeon on the Endangered Species Act. So that data would go to NEMPS and everybody could share in that information. Information sharing is, is so important to move our knowledge forward. Because one of the things I found is that the more we learn about this animal, the less we knew. You know, yeah. it seemed like every year there was something new. And that's what made it exciting. That's cool. Make a whole career out of this. Yeah, I really agree with that, Ty. The information that different researchers are putting together in a one place is really valuable to give us a better picture of what's going on with sturgeon in the Chesapeake Bay. Why should people care about the Atlantic sturgeon? Uh, we're talking about a living dinosaur here. We certainly don't want to see something that's, you know, a, a dinosaur go extinct on our watch, you know, so if we can somehow collect enough data and figure out ways to protect them the best we can, you know, so that we have them for future generations. And the fish has been so important to America from its founding to the present. Without sturgeon, the original colonists for Jamestown may not have survived. Commercially, it's been important. And in fact, today is used as a standard for developing the dissolved oxygen standard for the Chesapeake Bay. It's a very oh. important fish. That's cool. Okay, well, thank you too for joining us. We really appreciate thank you. Well, all thank your knowledge. Yeah, thank you. Okay, get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially America's fish, the Atlantic sturgeon. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>